Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Ben Norton. Ben Norton is a journalist and writer whose work primarily focuses on U.S. foreign policy, the Middle East, media criticism, and movements for economic and social justice. He lives in New York City, and one of his recent articles at Alternet is called How Trump's CIA Used Bin Laden Files and a Neocon Think Tank to Escalate Tensions with Iran. Ben Norton, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, The CIA, I mean, pre-Trump, the CIA seems to me to have been after Iran since approximately the creation of the CIA. What, uh, (laughs) what, What has changed and what has it done now? Well, to be frank, actually, it's since 1979. People forget that before 79, before the Iranian Revolution, Iran was a U.S. proxy in the region. The U.S. backed the dictator, the Shah, and it was a close U.S. ally that worked with Israel and Saudi Arabia. Um, oh. It's since 1979 when you know, there was a revolution that overthrew the Western-backed monarch that, that things have really shifted. But of course, I mean, in 1953, one of the CIA's you know, first hurrahs was uh, overthrowing the democratically elected uh, prime minister, Mossadegh, on behalf of oil companies. Um, but yeah, I mean, this raises a really interesting point, and it's an important one that I try to stress in a lot of my work, and that's that regardless of who is in the White House, U.S. foreign policy really stays very similar, whether it's a Democratic or Republican, you know, whether or not they campaign on changing foreign policy. At the end of the day, there is a status quo of imperialism. The U.S. has the largest empire in the world. It has more than 800 foreign military bases. It has 150,000 military personnel in 150 countries. You know, we, we recently saw uh, the attack in Niger, and people were like, why does the U.S. have troops in Niger? I mean, the U.S. has troops everywhere. Um, but Iran has really been a linchpin for a lot of this. And um, in particular, Donald Trump, even though every president has, you know, opposed the Iranian government since the revolution, uh, Trump has made it a key part of his foreign policy. And in October, he gave an important speech that was all about Iran, um, and he demonized the country. He, in fact, as I, as I detailed in another article, blamed Iran for al-Qaeda attacks and was, in fact, whitewashing bin Laden and al-Qaeda in order to try to demonize Iran and blame Tehran for all these incidents. So we've really seen an escalation. And I don't think it's unprecedented, but I think it, compared to Obama, it is certainly an escalation in U.S. aggression against Iran. And the CIA has in particular been, been a key factor in, in the new Trump administration's strategy. And what is the, the latest maneuver by the CIA? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, this, of course, isn't necessarily new again. So we see uh, these tactics that are used over a period of decades that come back again and again. Um, But now the Trump administration in the past several weeks has absurdly been trying to link Iran to Al Qaeda. And and to some Americans, this might not seem strange, but it actually is incredibly bizarre and ridiculous. It is flatly ridiculous. First of all, Iran is a Shia majority country. And of course, it's theocratic. So the Shia um, theology that its, that its government is based on is in fact directly opposed to Al-Qaeda, which is a Sunni extremist Salafi group. And in fact, Al-Qaeda, which shares the same ideology as Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran's r- arch rival, 
uh, Al-Qaeda considers Shia to be non-Muslim apostates. And in fact, many of the people killed by Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other Salafi groups are, the, are Shia. They're, they're Muslims, but they're from the Shia sect, which is a small minority that makes up um, less than one-fifth of all the Muslims throughout the world. So first of all, the attempt to link Iran to Al-Qaeda is just preposterous from a political and theological perspective. But even beyond that, the Trump administration's attempt to link Iran to Al-Qaeda are ridiculously and dangerously specious when we look at the history of similar attempts. Of course, in the uh, lead up into the illegal 2003 U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, the, the Bush administration tried without any evidence to link Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi leader, to Al-Qaeda. Again, there was no proof of this. Um, there was only one supposed piece of evidence, and that was that an Iraqi intelligence official met an Al-Qaeda member in the Czech Republic, but even that was totally wrong. It, it was just simply not true. Um, but this is even more extreme. So we see the Trump administration adopting a tactic that was used by the Bush administration to justify invading Iraq. And now we see the CIA encouraging a similar tactic, where uh, I detail in my article, we know that the CIA released uh, further documents related to bin Laden, which these documents were obtained during the um, raid of, of his compound in Abbottabad in Pakistan. And it's very clear that the CIA released these documents uh, it, for political reasons. Um, and that, that has been exposed. I mean, this is not me speculating. It has, these intentions have been exposed by the new director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, uh, who said this expressly last month in October uh, when he was speaking at a conference organized by the neoconservative think tank Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And he said he was asked by this uh, neoconservative think tank apparatchik about the supposed ties between Iran and Al-Qaeda. And the new CIA director, Mike Pompeo, who is a longtime Trump stalwart, he's a close friend of Trump, Pompeo said, well, we have new documents that will be coming out soon uh, detailing these ties. So it's very clear, and I can get more into the, the nitty gritty details, but it's very clear that this was a politically motivated release of further bin Laden documents. And the attempt was to supposedly try to link this Sunni extremist group to Iran to justify the very aggressive posturing the Trump administration has been taking. When, when I link through Ben Norton to uh, one of these supposed bin Laden documents uh, via this right wing think tank, uh, I find a document that appears to be in Arabic. Uh, and due to my uh, uh, ignorance, I'm incapable of making heads or tails of it. Has anybody with minimal credibility translated these new documents into English? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I, uh, I, sp I read and I studied Arabic at a moderate level, and, and I've looked through some of them, and they certainly they look real. I mean, I certainly do not have the uh, you know, skills needed to, to verify whether or not documents are, uh, are fake or not. But I mean, they might be real. But even if they are real, what, what they expose is not what people are claiming. So for instance, um, to provide a little more details about how this, this clear coordination is working, uh, the CIA gave documents, these bin Laden documents, to the Foundation for Defense of Democracies project, the Long War Journal, which is, a, again, a neoconservative um, project that is, focuses on Iran, whatever U.S. enemy is being demonized this month. And in fact, uh, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, the FDD, um, they have a very long history of advocating for very aggressive military action against Iran. 
Um, so the CIA gave this organization and its long war journal um, documents early before they publicly released all the bin Laden documents, which gave them time to sift through the documents and find the supposed minor links to uh, between Al-Qaeda and Iran. The only things they could come up with, which again, might not even be true, but even if they are, this is, this is not a big deal. The Long War Journal claimed that several Al-Qaeda leaders have lived in, in Iran, Okay, but what they did not stress is the fact that when they were in Iran, they were being detained. <laughs> okay, so Iran was detaining al-Qaeda leaders. That actually sounds like something that the U.S. would supposedly want. Um, another document sh supposedly shows that a member of the bin Laden family had his wedding in Iran. Um, so these are not like smoking guns. So even if the documents are correct, and, and I don't have a reason to suspect that they're false, actually. Um, I think we can reasonably suspect that they're true. If these documents are real and what they show is that some Al-Qaeda leaders were detained in Iran, that is not, to me, in any way, uh, some kind of scandal. It, it, they're just they're grasping for anything they could find to try to make these ridiculous links look like they're significant when they're not. And, and yet I'm starting to see headlines and things pop up on social media and on uh, websites uh, alleging Iran being behind 9-11. I mean, it's, it's exactly, <laughs> it's, you know, people tell me the Pentagon's gone green. I say, yeah, they're recycling 100% of their propaganda. It's, it's exactly uh, what we were told about Iraq. Uh, I mean, it, 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 you would think for the billions of dollars that these agencies have, they could think up a new idea. Um, but if it, if it worked for Iraq, uh, it, I mean, it, it appears they want to try the same thing again. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, as for the attempts to link Iran 9-11, I mean, this is just so preposterous. It's just, it's hard to wrap my mind around it, I, especially considering the fact that one, not only I, politically and theologically are Iran and Al-Qaeda, you know, this Salafi group opposed, but also Iran strongly opposed the invasion of Iraq. Uh, you know, there's been this attempt post facto to rewrite the history and say, oh, Iran wanted the U.S. to invade Iraq. And then Iran, you know, was going to take over Iraq and turn Iraq into a colony, which, you know, the New York Times has been publishing all these articles talking about how Iran's nefarious influence in Iraq is, is challenging U.S. power. And as examples, they, they say Iran is selling yogurt and chicken inside Iraq. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, th this is just, it's so obscene and it's just outrageous. I mean, it's, it's an example of how we really do not have a free press in this country. How the media, you know, the ostensible independent corporate media just largely echoes U.S. government talking points, regardless of how, you know, totally wrong and fallacious they are. But this is, it's just one of the most ridiculous things I can imagine. And the New York Times, it's, in fact, itself, um, re recently issued a retraction. This was this year after four years um, claiming that Iran supposedly sponsored 9-11. And uh, a friend of mine who's a journalist, Adam Johnston, wrote an article for FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting, looking at this and how after four years, uh, the New York Times put a small little correction at the bottom of its article where no one would notice it, saying, oh yeah, by the way, Iran had nothing to do with 9-11. So these are very clearly politically motivated uh, claims that have no basis in reality and are only being used to obfuscate and to justify U.S. foreign policy. 
So, so what is the game plan of people who seem to be pushing for war on Iran? The, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, uh, apparently, as, as you report, gets money from Sheldon Adelson. Uh, you have Mike Pompeo uh, making ridiculous allegations against Iran. Uh, you have the National Security Advisor, McMaster, who calls Trump an idiot but wants Trump to do this idiotic thing. Uh, have they given up now on... On tearing up the nuclear agreement, uh, because surely, surely to get a war going with Iran will require something more than than this sort of nonsense. Well, to be frank, I don't think at this moment the U.S. is trying to directly wage war on Iran. It would just be so catastrophic, and everyone knows it. It just can't happen right now. Unfortunately, I think it it's certainly not off the table for the future. But, uh, you know, Iran is not even Iraq. Iraq was already a disaster. It killed a million people. It destabilized the entire region. It gave birth to ISIS. But Iran is, uh, is even stronger. Iran has a very strong military and, and significant allies. And I, I don't think that the Trump administration, I mean, there are a lot of crazy things that it will do, but it's simply not in the cards at this moment. However, what the U.S. is going to do under Trump is what it's done for years, but intensified. And that is use different proxy conflicts and indirect means to try to weaken and destabilize Iran. So first of all, we need to remember that the U.S. has very harsh sanctions against Iran. And sanctions are, I would argue, a form of war. Of course, they're not the kind of war that we think of when you have bombs falling, but they're a major act of aggression in which the U.S. is applying economic means to harm not just Iran, but the Iranian civilians, the civilian population in the country who do not have access to, you know, many of many things economically because of these crippling sanctions. And the Trump administration has only continued those sanctions and in an attempt to try to undermine the Iran nuclear deal has reimposed more sanctions. And this is, of course, in violation of the agreement, which the Trump administration has repeatedly reluctantly acknowledged that Iran is is following. Iran is in no way the aggressor when it comes to this. Iran, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the Iranian government, but Iran has totally followed the agreement. And it's it's not just the U.S. and Iran that made this agreement. People forget. It's all of the, the permanent members of the Security Council, including France, uh, including China, including Russia. I mean, the U.S. under Trump, you know, they, they think they can just withdraw from this this international agreement unilaterally. But that's not how international law works. And it just, again, shows how the U.S. does not care about international law and international norms. It will do whatever it wants to justify its aggressive foreign policy. So I think those are part of it. But then we also see what's going on in neighboring countries. We see, of course, Syria and Iraq. And we see now Lebanon. The, the most recent development in Lebanon is, in fact, I think one of the most worrying and interesting ones. Um, we saw that uh, the former prime minister of Lebanon, Saad Hariri, he went on a trip. He was called to Saudi Arabia. And in Riyadh, on TV, he resigned in a very bizarre uh, speech that was clearly written by someone else. And he's essentially been held hostage now. Um, so we see Saudi Arabia, a U.S. proxy in the region, destabilizing a democratically elected government in Lebanon. You know, the U.S. always claims, oh, we need to support democracy. They don't care about democracy. Their closest ally and proxy in the region is is destabilizing the country of Lebanon, forcing its prime minister to resign, uh, and, and in many ways destroying its elected government. Um, and, we, and we see this, of course, is all justified with the supposed threat of Iran. Saudi Arabia says we... 
had to do this because Hezbollah has taken over Lebanon, even though Hezbollah, its political wing, has elected members in the parliament in, in Lebanon. And uh, the U.S. considers Hezbollah a terrorist organization, which, which is, you know, of course, politically motivated. Hezbollah, unlike extremist groups, Hezbollah does not target civilians. The only reason they considered a terrorist organization is the same reason they considered South African anti-apartheid leaders terrorists. Um, Nelson Mandela was on the terrorist list until 2008. So there are so many double standards and there's so much hypocrisy, but it's very clear that all of these actions are related to an attempt to undermine Iran. And the U.S. might not be dropping bombs tomorrow, but it's going to use the conflicts in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. It's going to use uh, politics in the region. It's going to use sanctions to try to weaken the government of Tehran. And the flip side, uh, Ben Norton, of this uh, U.S. Uh, antagonization of Iran is its partnership and friendship and support for Saudi Arabia, uh, not just in Syria and Lebanon, but but also in Yemen, uh, where the U.S. and Saudi governments uh, have been partners in the, the destruction of a country that is threatening massive uh, death and suffering in the in the weeks ahead. What is the what is the state of affairs uh, in Yemen? I'm so glad we're talking about this now, and I'm so glad that there's been some media coverage because, you know, the, the war in Yemen has been going on for 970 days as of today is uh, November 21st. Um, so this is a conflict that's gone on since March of 2015, and I, in fact, have been reporting on it a lot. And this is example. after Obama's successful drone war in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the, right. the drone war in Yemen began immediately after 9-11. Um, it even began under Bush. And so that's been going on for 16 years. But in addition to that, since March 2015, Saudi Arabia, with staunch U.S. support, also support from the British, has been waging a brutal br- bombing campaign launching uh, thousands of air sorties, um, more than one third of which have hit civilian areas. And it's killed thousands of civilians. And even worse than that, not only has it killed thousands of civilians, but it has led to the deaths of many tens of thousands more um, by creating the largest humanitarian catastrophe in the world. So since March 2015, the, the coalition that is supposedly, it's called led by Saudi Arabia, that's what all the media outlets say, but the U.S. Uh, military is deeply involved. And the New York Times editorial board acknowledged uh, in a rare you know, editorial on this issue that were it not for American support, the Saudi Arabia would not be able to wage the war. So this is, I would call it a U.S.-Saudi war. It's not just Saudi. And uh, not only have they been brutally bombing Yemen for two and a half years now, but they also have been imposing a blockade. And Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East, uh, even before the conflict, the majority of the population was was food insecure. Um, but now you have millions of people on the verge of famine in, in what the UN has warned could be the largest famine the world has seen in decades. You know, we live in 2017. We you know, have this impression that we, we, we've defeated famine, we've defeated disease. No, not only is Yemen on the verge of massive famine thanks to this war, in which the U.S. and the U.K. have been deeply involved. Also, it has the largest cholera outbreak in recorded history. And, and you know, these records began in the mid-20th century, but, but we, cholera is an easily preventable disease. And now you have, uh, as of this, you know, this month, toward the end of uh, November and early December, we'll probably have one million cases of cholera inside Yemen, which, again, to stress this, is easily preventable. But because the health system has been so destroyed 
by this war, where about 55% of health clinics in Yemen are either not functional or only partially functional. Um, there's been a complete just destruction of civil society in the country. Um, for more than a year, health workers have not been paid. I mean, things are just so uh, beyond, uh, you know, like a movie. They're just, they're a, it's, it's beyond horrible. Hor- horrifying, horrible, and um, and unfortunately, the U.S. again is directly involved. the The Obama administration did 112 billion dollars in arms sales with Saudi Arabia, and the Trump administration has been doing the same. In fact, Trump visited Saudi Arabia several months ago, and he immediately signed a 110 billion dollar arms deal with the country. So, unfortunately, uh, this issue is not new. It's been going on for 32 months. But fortunately, now there's been some increasing attention to what's happening. And, and U.S. military direct involvement, targeting and refueling midair and, and so forth. I mean, this is a U.S.-Saudi military operation, as you noted. And, I, and, and I've, I, I, what I would love your view on is how we change the U.S. media on this, because I, I, I've thought for a long time that if it weren't caused by a U.S.-backed war, there would be a very different sort of media coverage uh, of this crisis. Uh, And yet, every once in a while, you see a story, even on the front page of the Washington Post, about how the famines in Yemen and surrounding countries are caused by wars. Uh, But then, you know, you go right back to coverage like the recent 60 Minutes uh, coverage that talks about the the crisis uh, without mentioning the United States' role at all, uh, and most of the media not even doing that, not even talking about the crisis. Uh, how, How do we change that? Of course. And unfortunately, it's not just the American media. It's also the British media. Um, we see the same kind of coverage. And, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. have been deeply involved equally. The U.K. has also done billions of dollars of arms sales and is providing military assistance. So, I mean, I think there are a few ways to respond to this. One, we have to understand the issue. Um, and I would argue the primary issue right now at this moment is no longer simply covering Yemen, which has been an issue for many months. I mean, I've been reporting on this issue for, for two and a half years now. And, and I remember I was a, a staff writer at Salon and I was writing articles very frequently about Yemen. And, and people would be like, why, do you, why are you writing so much about Yemen? Like, what, what's even going on? And now after 32 months of this war, people are finally seeing why I was so obsessed with it. I mean, this is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. And the UN has been saying that for a year now. Um, so that, that was the first issue with media coverage. Fortunately, we've gone over that hurdle. And now we have another issue, which is the way that the issue is presented. So now we do have coverage of Yemen. But like you said, the role of the United States and the United Kingdom is completely either downplayed or erased. Uh, 60 Minutes just released a, a great uh, episode of, of their you know, material on the war in Yemen. Um, of course, it did not one time mention the key role the United States has played in this conflict. The key role, not an accompanying role, the key role. You know, just to emphasize, as you said, and, and as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. is providing billions of dollars of weapons, and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have documented with video and photos uh, rubble in civilian areas that were bombed by the Saudi, U.S.-Saudi coalition in Yemen, and the, all the fragments of the bombs say made in the U.S., made in Britain. Um, but the U.S. military has also been doing in-air refueling, providing 
you know, millions of gallons of fuel for the Saudi planes. And many of the Saudi planes were also made in the U.S. And the U.S. just did another uh, uh, arms deal selling planes to Saudi Arabia. But not just that. Um, American and British military officers have also physically been in the command room with Saudi bombers. And like you said, they provided a list of targets that this so-called Saudi-led coalition will be attacking. Um, Of course, media outlets will mention this every once in a while, but it is not systematic. So I think one of the things that we have to do, you know, as people working in media, as anti-war activists, others, is, is pressure media outlets to acknowledge this fundamental reality without which we can't understand what's going on. Um, because it's one thing to report on an issue, but it's another thing to misreport on the issue. And in some ways, ignoring an issue is actually not as bad in some ways as misrepresenting what's going on. And then beyond that, of course, beyond just looking at the media coverage, we have to look at what our government is doing and look at ways in which we can pressure it to change its policies. And fortunately, there has been uh, some uh, progress in the Congress, although it has not been successful, um, but but there has been progress. Um, There have been several bills that have been introduced in both the House and the Senate, over the past about a year and a half, we have some Congress people like Ted Lieu in California, Chris Murphy in the Senate, um, and even you know we have some Republicans who are, are more anti-war or libertarian-leaning like Rand Paul, who have been raising this issue. Um, they still do not have a majority of support in either the House or the Senate, but there is some issue, there is some uh, concern that has been raised, and some people are finally speaking out. And I actually think that this is an issue that should at least you know, ideally be easier politically than an issue like Israel-Palestine. You know, people, when it comes to Israel-Palestine, people are smeared and demonized and blacklisted for even acknowledging um, Israel's violations of international law, the occupation, you go down the list. With Saudi Arabia, it's much harder to defend Saudi Arabia than it is Israel. So I would think that there would be bipartisan political support on this issue. Of course, Saudi Arabia has hired a dozen lobbyists in Washington, D.C. It has, you know, so much money, um, thanks to its oil revenue, to throw around. Um, But we have seen some breakthrough. It just certainly needs to go much further. Uh, it needs to it needs to reverse U.S. policy, not just stop what it's doing now. Is it, we have just a, a couple minutes left, Ben? Uh, is it is it possible that we can take what little talk there's been in Congress and turn it into better public awareness and and cycle that back into greater action in in Congress, or or can we get to the the Trump administration? Uh, how can we actually uh, open up? the ports, uh, at let in aid and food, uh, and, and stop the, stop the destruction, uh, because otherwise we're going to see millions of deaths, uh, and people are going to be misinformed about what caused them, uh, and we're not going to get anywhere. Well, unfortunately, I don't think there's a simple answer to that, but I think the most important answer is we need to rebuild the anti-war movement. Um, you know, unfortunately I have little faith in Congress and Congress is only, forced to do the right thing at the last possible minute. History shows that again and again and again. You know, Congress did not just willingly sign the Voting Rights Act. It took a massive uh, civil rights movement with with huge grassroots support, 
where people were out in the streets, where they were, you know, organizing campaigns and boycotts. We need, uh, we need to rebuild the, the anti-war movement, which was destroyed under the Obama administration. You know, people <laughs> voted in a Democrat and they thought he would change everything. Of course, he changed virtually nothing. Um, so that, that is, is, a, is an excellent answer. And I wish we could uh, continue. I agree with you 100 percent, but uh, we are out of time. Uh, ben Norton's work can be found at alternate.org. We'll put up links at talknationradio.org. Ben, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and thanks for the great show. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.